Thank you guys so much. This is, this is an honor for me to get to share. It is a sort of teaching that when Wendy asked me if I would be willing to do it, I could not say no. And I'm a researcher and I mull things over and I analyze and I was just like, yeah, if you're gonna talk about books, I'm, I wanna talk about books. So let's go ahead and pray just to kind of help focus me and all of us. Lord, we are so grateful to gather together I ask that you would have your way in this service. I ask that you would speak through and in spite of me. We surrender it all to you in your name, Jesus. Amen. So how many of you guys are readers? Oh, some, I knew. I looked to Iceland because I knew that her hand would like shoot up before everyone else, and it did. Um, so raise your hands again. How many? Just because I didn't get to see. I was so focused. Awesome. Awesome. So for the rest of you that maybe don't consider yourself a reader, I believe it is because you have not found your book yet. And I believe this because my husband was not a reader. He was very much not a reader when we started dating. Um, he tells me, he claims that in the sixth grade he was, um, he was an avid reader. And I guess he then discovered his like, sense of humor and like, dropped the books. Um, I don't have any evidence, but he says that was his year. That was his year of reading. Um, so when we, like two years into marriage, as happens, when you're with someone enough time, you start to kind of look over to the side and say, what is that that you're doing? And I don't know, that seems maybe more interesting than I give it credit for. I had tons of books and he would kind of look at the bookshelf and one day he was like, well, what would you recommend if like I just wanted to try it out again? And I was like, oh, challenge accepted. <laughs> I was like, I will do this. So I thought, I researched, um, I was like, okay, maturity level, age, attention span. <laughs> Adventure, I knew kind of what he wanted, and I was like, aha, pièce de résistance. It is going to be Percy Jackson and the Lightning Thief. <laughs> you might think, this is a book for like sixth graders. No, no, I knew that it would capture his attention. I knew that it would be just enough to kind of hook him, and that's exactly what it did, right? He read the first one, and then he read the second one, and then the series, and then another series by the same author, and then he was looking at other series of YA and Hunger Games, and. There have been some series with dragons that I won't give a platform to here that he's also gotten into and Harry Potter and on and on and on. At this point now, he is an avid reader. I was looking at a list of science fiction films that are coming out this year or that are in production and he's read all of them. So I genuinely believe, genuinely believe you just haven't found it yet. But the reason that I think that it really stuck for him isn't just because the book was the right book. Like, I'll give myself credit, but not too much credit. I think it's because I had read them and his brother was reading them. So I think it's because he had people to talk about with. And we could have conversations and it was like a whole thing. It wasn't just him reading it off on the side. He got to tell me, what do you think about this? And what do you think about that? And his brother was really into it. So today what I want us to think about and what we're gonna kind of spe spend some time, time on is not just literature for literature's sake, not just reading for the sake of reading, but really communal reading. So we've been in a series for the last five weeks on what art means and how it helps us to connect to our Lord, right? So Wendy introduced, um, started off by introducing us to God as invested in art, and she looked at Exodus and kind of his commitment to detail and artistry and beauty and aesthetics. And then we heard from Larry and his sister in dialogue about sort of art as healing and what it means to produce and to find a way to express yourself when maybe words aren't enough, right? And how God sits with us in that process. Um, Matt then took us to one of the oldest genres of the Bible, right? And he looked at prophecy and he connected that to contemporary context and thought about hip hop in relation to, to prophecy and how it's about grief, but also hope and kind of what that art form 
can show us and teach us about the human experience. And then Alberto last week, looking at sculpture, thought about the image bearers and what it means to produce an image and how we are image bearers of our God and how that should give us dignity and remind us of the value and dignity in others. So this week, we get to look at literature, which is my favorite, right? I mentioned, and Larry kind of pointed this out a little bit, the reason why I couldn't say no is because I don't just read for fun. Like, I read for a living. <laughs> this is like what I do every single day. I read books, I talk about books, I pick books for other people to read, I assess people on their reading. For many years I did that as a high school teacher. Um, I'm finishing up now a PhD in English literature with the goal of being a professor and just doing that basically forever. So, God willing, that ends this year. <laughs> um, so, I'm basically your classic, like, bookworm turned academic. Right, and this in part, and maybe some of you guys who are readers, is because I grew up in a family where everyone read all the time. Like, there was a budget for everything, but books were like the thing that seemed to be limitless. And we would go to the library and it was just stacks and stacks and stacks of books. And Scholastic, I still see the like red with white lettering and it like, oh, it kind of sends shivers through me. Like it's still, it was like my favorite part of the school year, coming home with that like catalog and being told like, okay, well this, you know, you can pick whatever six. Um, so, <laughs> six. So I, I very much as a part of me, but it also, the reason why I gravitated towards it, and maybe some of you too, is because it was a form of escape. And this is true, I think, also of like TV series now that have adopted sort of the sustained attention to one story. The kind of binging is what you think of a book taking hours and hours. Well, that's kind of what we're doing now with our TV watching, is taking a story and sitting with it for a long time. It's a form of escape. And maybe you can deal with tragedy there because you don't really want to deal with tragedy here. Or maybe you can think about feelings over there because you don't want to think about the feelings over here. As someone who does not deal with feelings very well, I will confess this to you. And I think that's why the Lord brought me to this church is because we are invested in feelings. We talk about feelings a lot. And every time I'm like, no, I don't want to do it. I don't want to do it. <laughs> um, and I think books, what's, what's been really powerful for me in literature is finding language for feelings that I'm having that I don't totally understand. And I don't have the bravery or the boldness to talk about it with someone else. But then you kind of see it written and you're like, oh, someone gets it. Like it's legitimate, it's valid, it's real. Right, the last line um, in Sula, and I'm thinking a lot about Morrison because she passed away a couple weeks ago. Um, it says, and just to give an example of this, that last line of the novel is, it was a fine cry, loud and long, but it had no bottom and it had no top. It just circles and circles of sorrow. And you, you get that sentence and you're like, oh, that's, that's not just sad. That's not just I'm feeling some kind of way. It's like bigger than that. And language is trying to kind of come close to addressing that. And you, if you felt like that, you get it. And someone kind of got you. What literature's done for me, too, is it's given me a sense of belonging, right? I grew up watching um, shows that did not have people with similar experiences as mine, right? Um, in my era, it was Felicity, Dawson's Creek, <laughs> 90210. Like, ne'er a wider, wealthier group of people <laughs> um, could there be. And that was, like, the people that I was like, well, I guess that's what life is. It's not, like, awkward girls who feel in between being Puerto Rican and American and struggling with adolescence. And so in eighth grade, when I read um, Cuando era Puerto Rican, when I was Puerto Rican, I was like, ah, someone, someone gets it, someone sees me, someone else has a similar experience, and it's not, you know, 
whether or not they're going to go to this really wealthy college or this other really wealthy um, college. It's like something that I can relate to. And their music sounds like the music that my parents are listening to. And their food, I can almost smell it. It smells like the food that my family's cooking. Right, because what literature does, and the reason why I think um, we're getting there in other forms of entertainment, we're getting there with our media, hold on, is that it only takes one person to write the book. It takes a couple people to edit, but you don't have the same, you don't need the same amount of money, definitely. You don't need the same amount of people, you don't need the same amount of green lighting. So you get stories from the margins. You'd certainly get them much more often, and I would argue in some cases more powerfully than you do through other forms of entertainment. And that's kind of what I've dedicated myself to. So I teach um, 20th century American literature, and I specialize in African American and Latinx literature, ethnic American um, literature. That means I'm basically always reading, talking about, teaching the stories of the margins, right? Those who feel invisible or overlooked, or forgotten, and in some cases it's about identifying with that and saying, I'm here too, I matter too, someone sees me. Um, and in other cases, it's about experiences totally foreign to me or my students, and there's a power in that too. Right, I, I will, I'll beach read like the next person. Like I, that's not, I'm not after your like summer readings, like I'm all, I'm, all, I'm here for that, um, for sure. But I do think that there's a power and something to kind of reckon with in the artistry of the experiences of humanity when they're really f different from yours and when they're often overlooked and silenced. Um, I teach, I've taught like 10 times, I've certainly read it more than that, Invisible Man, it's my favorite novel. Um, the opening line to that kind of sets this up, illustrates kind of what it's like to be in the margins in this way. The novel starts, I am an invisible man. No, I am not a spook like those who haunted Edgar Allan Poe. Nor am I one of your Hollywood movie ectoplasms. I am a man of substance, of flesh, of bone, and fiber, and liquids, and I might even be said to possess a mind. Like the bodiless heads you see sometimes in circus sideshows, it is as though I have been surrounded by mirrors of hard, distorting glass. When they approach me, they see only my surroundings, themselves, or figments of their imagination. Indeed, everything and anything except me. One of the reasons I'm so passionate about the form that we're talking about today is because you get those who feel invisible. right? You get those voices, you get those stories, um, and you get it in a way that I think points us back to sort of the expansiveness of God's creation. I get this daily with my students. Um, I'll have some students who will identify and say, oh, and it's great when they can like read something out in their own language and they're in a college classroom and they get to like contribute and say, oh, this is actually how we would pronounce it or this is what this sounds like or this is what this tastes like and, and that's awesome. But I also have students, I had one last semester, um, a Chinese student in my Latinx literature and cultures class who not only was managing English as a second language, had to access Chicano Spanish and Puerto Rican Spanglish also. <laughs> so he's sitting in a college classroom, super distant from this source material, right? Having to get through so many layers, and it was, it was hard. It was really hard. There were a lot of office hours, a lot of drafts, a lot of conversations. And he worked through it, and by the end of it, he's like, there's so much I don't understand, but there's a lot more that I know, and, I at least can identify 
with what it feels like in his case to be an immigrant. He's like, I, I, I got that. I sense that in a different language, in a different context, but it captured it. So it is important, and I would encourage all of us, for those who are readers and for those who are looking for their book, to kind of stretch ourselves a little bit, right, and look for the stories of, of people really different from you, the expansiveness of God's creation, the sort of expansiveness of human experience. And sure, I can end there. Just go read. Read more. Read better. Um, but I would argue that there's much more power in reading together and in sitting with it together. Because sure, you can sit and read by yourself, and you can grow, and you can be expanded. But if you've gone to a movie, the first thing you want to do when you get out of that movie is like talk to someone about it, right? That's why like Twitter, after like certain shows air, is just like everybody's writing because you want to have a conversation about it. You want to learn something else about it. You want to figure something out that you didn't. And if you're going with someone who's into comics, they will tell you all the little details of the Marvel universe if you did not capture it from that film. There's something to conversation. Right, because the best art should move us to contemplation, but it should also move us to conversation. And I realize when I say like best art, I might sound a little bit like a book snob, and I really, I promise you I'm not. Like I read whatever, I'll read the free stuff, I will totally judge a book by its cover, and I'm like, nah, it looks interesting, I'm in. Like I will read whatever, I'll read young adult, I'll, whatever. But there's something to be said for the ones that kind of rock you. Right, not the ones that you read on a beach and you were super entertained and it was lovely, but the ones that like ugh, sit with you and kind of make you think. And some books are hard, and we're going to talk today about one that's that can be a little hard, and that's okay. <laughs> um, that's okay. Some are hard because the structure's hard. Uh, my mom's reading Cloud Atlas after I recommended it to her, and it's got like a nested narrative, and she is just like, I can't with this format. Like, is just struggling with it, and that's. That's totally fine. Some are going to be hard. Some are hard because they're long. I will confess to you, as an Americanist, I should have read this novel, and I have not read it. I have never finished Moby Dick. Just, I haven't, and I should have. This is my field. But it's too long. It's too long. And it's hard because it's long, and it's hard because I'm by myself trying to get through it. But I bet you if I had been assigned it in a class, if I was reading it with some people, I probably would have gotten through it like 150 pages into that whale, I'm like, I'm out. I can't when I'm doing it by myself. Because the hard when we do it together is a little bit less hard. So today we're going to make a case for engaging art collectively. We're going to talk about it together. We're going to pick it apart. We're going to think about it. Um, it's going to have a little bit different of a format, but I feel like this series allows for that. So you're going to come with me. We're going to experience God. Wendy introduced us by thinking about... Um, the feeling part of art, right? I want us to close by the sort of thinking part of art, maybe selfishly and indulgently, because that's where I'm like safe and comfortable. Um, but experiencing and encountering God's artistry with both the right and the left part of our brain. Siri wants to join the conversation. <laughs> she just turned on randomly. Um, so before we um, start out, because we're going to pick a work of art that we share in common, right? We're going we're gonna to look at a, a passage from scripture. We're going to look at a story and a couple disclaimers. The Bible is art and it is literature. That does not mean that it is any less real or true or life-giving. I am not putting it at the same level as the most canonical, revered novel you could have read because it is not. It is something else. But that doesn't also mean that it isn't beautiful and worth thinking about and worth sitting with and worth processing. 
see. <laughs> um, it is the book, right? It is the narrative of humanity and God's desire to reconcile himself to his people. It is told in multiple genres. It is told across centuries. It is told in multiple languages. It has thousands of events, so many characters. It is complex and beautiful, and yet it is also one, right? And it is one because it is God's story about his people and himself and his love. So today's going to take a little bit of bravery from you guys, a little bit of like shaking off maybe some um, hesitations, because we're going to spend a little bit of time in class. <laughs> um, so what that means is that I'm going to ask for this to be a little bit more interactive, because I can stand up here and just explain to you a passage, and that's, that's cool, and that that's definitely has its time and place and is really important, um, but I also want us to experience it together, and the best conversations that I've had about any book are in, in classrooms and are with other people who get to sort of find out other elements. I've read Invisible Man at least 12 times. I was talking about it with Alberto like two years ago. He read it. It's long and it is, there's no real adventure and he, he made it. Um, and he revealed something to me that I hadn't even thought about. And I was like, what? How have I read this novel this many times? And you picked something out that I had not even processed, right? Because there's something about that conversation. So for those who did not have good experiences in classrooms, I, I get it and I'm super sorry. Like, I'm sorry for the resources that were mismanaged or for teachers that maybe made you feel ashamed to speak up or that your voice didn't matter. That's not, that's not cool, that's not okay. That's not what this is, right? There is absolutely no shame or judgment. Um, in one of my graduate programs, I remember never hearing a question in the entire program. And it made me realize, oh, I do not want to get my PhD there. Because <laughs> everyone monologues and nobody's in dialogue. And that, I can't grow in that. And I don't think much of us, many of us can grow in that. So feel free to ask questions. Um, what we're gonna do is spend some time close reading, which is kind of what I do for a living. Um, close reading is looking for, it's sustained attention to a text, like really stopping and thinking about this text, not just glossing it, not putting it in a bigger context, just what is what are the words on the page saying, and identifying patterns and what we can glean from it. So we're gonna close read a story that you guys might have, um, might have um, hopefully read before, you've certainly heard about it. But hopefully, the part that we're gonna get isn't the most um, cited. Hopefully what we'll get out of this is a conversation and some skills and an ability to kind of return to the beauty of this work of art. I had a pastor um, at our old church would always say, get in the book, get in the book, get in the book. So today we're gonna get in the book, right? And we're gonna do it together. So what we're going to do is I'm going to ask only three questions. So pretty easy, right? What, who, and how? Literally, what's happening? Just like at the most basic level, what is happening? The fancy lit term is like plot, but it's what? Um, we're going to do some characterization, which is really who. Who's in this story? What do we know about them? What, and not like what do we know about them from our life experience, like what do we know about them from these 16 sentences? That's it. And how? What details stand out? Like how is the story being told? Because the Bible is not a recipe for salvation, right? It's not like a list of commands and that's it. It could have been, but it's not. It's a work of art. It's stories. It's narrative. There's one part where sure we have a command 
don't kill, but then we have stories of Cain and Abel, a whole narrative of a relationship and what the brokenness that, that can bring, right? It, it'll say, don't commit adultery, but then we'll get David's struggle and kind of what that leads into. We'll get a whole narrative about it. So today we're going to spend some time in that narrative. So I will read the passage. I'm prompting you with exactly what the questions are. What, who, and how. We're only going to spend a little bit of time on that, right? We're not going to get into all of it. We could spend, you'll see, we could spend a lot longer. Um, but I'm going to invite you to participate. So that means I'm going to, I'm going to be, it's going to be scary for me because I'm going to have a moment where there's going to be silence. <laughs> and I am asking you to come with me and to chime in. <laughs> um, it's totally fine if it's quote unquote, you're not sure about it. I, I'm not sure of half the stuff. We're doing it together. Um, that's the whole point, right? So I'm going to ask you for, for some kind of participation, right? So I'll read it. You guys have, if the, we're going to pass out John 11, 1 through 16. It's in English and in Spanish. Um, for those who feel more comfortable in Spanish, si te sientes más cómodo en español, siéntate libre de contestarme en español. Feel free to answer me in Spanish. I will translate um, for us. So don't feel like you have to also navigate a whole other language to participate. No te sientas que tienes que navegar otro idioma para participar. Gracias a Dios, en ese idioma podemos. So I'm going to go ahead and read John 11, 1 through 16. Hopefully many of you have it. And kind of keep in mind the what's happening, just literally what's happening, who's involved, and how is it being told. Most people, I think, have it. Anybody missing one? If not, go ahead and raise your hand. Cool. So we're just reading the first part of the death of Lazarus, the first 16. It's basically like the exposition or the background. We're not even getting to like the, the parts that are like the meaty, the climax of the story. We're just going to do exposition, okay? Now, a man named Lazarus was sick. He was from Bethany, this village of Mary and his sister Martha. This Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sisters sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. When he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's son may be glorified through it. Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. Yet when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. Then he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. Uh, but Rabbi, they said, a short while ago, the Jews tried to stone you, and yet you were going back there? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble, for he sees by this world's light. It is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I am going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, if he sleeps, he'll get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Then Thomas, called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. That's it. That's all we're going to look at. So the first question, 
basic what's happening. You can give me one sentence, like one fact, one thing that's happened. Yeah. Jesus got news that his friend is sick. What else happens? Yeah. Jesus knows he's actually dead. What else? Who's they? Yep. The disciples tried to discourage Jesus from going. And kind of what's the end? Does it end in that discouragement or what? They decide to go anyway. Okay. So friend is sick. Jesus is discouraged from his disciples to get there. They decide to go anyway. That's like the most basic without any of the artistry. How boring would that be if that was like how the scripture was written? Just like, nah, no. Right? We have all this other stuff that we get to work through. So this is the fun part. Um, not that the plot isn't fun. Okay, the plot isn't fun. Um, the who. Oh, no. I like that that was the first one. <laughs> the who? Yep. Cast of characters, for those who like theater. Disciples. Lazarus. I understood Ezra, and I was like, oh, no. Um, <laughs> Who else? Mary, Martha, Thomas. Okay. What do we know about them from just these 16 verses? Not like what do we know about Jesus' character throughout all of Scripture, or what do we know about Thomas all the time? But here, if you were like from this description, what are these people like? Who are they? They're all friends? Are all of these friends? Do we have any more detail about that? Jesus loves the sisters and Lazarus. <laughs> Ugly little hearts. Uh-huh. What else? Jesus knows Lazarus is dead somehow. Yeah. So he seems to have kind of... Uh, What do you get about the disciples in these? Not other, like the disciples throughout scripture, but if this was the only thing you ever read about the disciples, what kind of things would you come away from? Yeah. They're not what? So, and where do we see that? They might not be entirely convinced of his power. There's some doubting, like, uh, there seems to be some skepticism. They're also what? They're cautious. Absolutely. Maybe a little dense. Yeah, that was a nice way to put it. They're a little slow. Where did you get that they might have been a little slow? They didn't get that. And that's why I love this passage for this, because we're not, like the disciples didn't get his metaphor. He, he was speaking in like this poetic language, and they're like, they took it literally. And he's like, had patience and speaks plainly. And is like, okay, let me break it down for you. He is dead. When I said sleep, I meant death. But, so, but he's patient, and he's working it through them. And they weren't expected to, like, know it. He's not shaming them. He's not, he just says it plainly. And he's aware that he's speaking in kind of poetic language, and he breaks it down. Yeah. Yeah, how so? Absolutely. It seems natural. He's saying that the sickness, say it again so that I can say it in the mic. 
Jesus says the sickness won't end in death. So he's saying there's kind of some evidence that they should have picked up on that he's not dead. So what do you think about the disciples? Reading of that then. <laughs> yeah. So there, he's saying, well, I mean, he already told them that it's not going to end in death. So maybe they're being super, like, credible and just taking him super literally at his word. Right. So I like that. I actually really like that. He's saying, were the disciples being dense or Jesus being cryptic? Because that, if you don't know Jesus from any other passage, maybe you read this and you're like, yeah, he sure likes to speak in, like, some cryptic, right? Um, I promise also by the time you get to the end of this all, it's not just cryptic, but like it parallels other moments and it's like a foreshadowing of his own resurrection. Like it gets really beautiful, right? So the cryptic that we're getting here is going to kind of play out. Yeah. The sisters what? That's, I like that. Mm-hmm. So the sisters, I like that. She's saying the sisters clearly believe that he has power, right? If you get here, he'll be healed, but they don't understand the extent of it. Like, wait, 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 so after death, you still have power? Like, that part is just, and of course, we're reading it, and we've got all this other kind of knowledge about it, but at that moment of it makes sense that you're not like, that's cool. Even if he's dead, he can figure it out. <laughs> yeah. In defense of the disciples. I like it. I like that. I love that ending. And I, I, when I was rereading this, I even asked Alberto, it's like, is this the same Thomas? Right? Because what is this Thomas? We don't see him anywhere else. If you were to characterize this one Thomas, what would you say about him? Loyal and courageous, and yet, what's the adjective we always talk about Thomas with? Doubting. And you're like, this Thomas isn't the Thomas that we hear about, which means Thomas is probably a lot more multifaceted and complex than we're giving him credit for, because he literally is saying, I am willing to die with him. If that's what it's going to take, this is a dangerous road, we're going to do it. Mm-hmm. Was, oh, I like, he wants Thomas to be doubting. Yeah. How is Thomas being skeptical? Mm-hmm. Oh, you're taking him. So tone matters. Whether you're reading time, it's like, okay, fine. We'll just like go die with him. You could read it that way. <laughs> sure. <laughs> he could be resigning himself. Which is a little more braver of a Thomas, right? There's a little bit more heart to that Thomas, yeah. And in all fairness to Thomas, in defense, I'm liking this defending. Mm hmm. Well, you can understand if you take this Thomas, if we read this Thomas carefully and don't just read that other Thomas out of context. And that's something that I want us to kind of sit with for sure is kind of how much this piece is going to affect how we read everybody else. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. So I like that one. I was going to for sure. Um, someone, yeah, you had your hand raised, right? Is that someone had their hand over here? Anybody want? No. Okay. It's supposed to say how. Oh, you think Thomas? You're reading him in the your voice of like, let's just go die. I read him so triumphantly. I had such a different Thomas. Um, Hopefully by the end um, of this, you'll have a, maybe a fuller picture. Um, so you brought up the, that detail. That's kind of the how. Is in the middle of this narrative, it gives us that detail of like he waited two days. That maybe changes how we characterize Jesus. What other, are there any other details that kind of stand out of like, you could have told this story the way that we did the plot. This happens and this happens and this happens. And there are some things that kind of seem a little bit either cryptic or different or interesting in terms of form, structure. Yeah. Which is the so, just to, which verse is it? Verse six. Verse six, mm-hmm. What does that make? That one so, what does that make? I love that. Yeah. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, because if you took out that so, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days. At that point, you might think he maybe had other stuff going on. He had a prior commitment. But when it says so, when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed. What is that so doing? Mm hmm. Mm hmm. Absolutely. I love that. So that one word, so, actually says, wait a minute, he intended this. He's not just like accidentally didn't, oh, I didn't make it today. I guess we'll go tomorrow. He heard. So when he heard, he waited. Okay, I'm going to put it out there first. Um, that passage was... I, I would argue it's certainly most cryptic of kind of all of this. Um, what do you guys gather from that one? Are there not 12 hours of daylight? A man who walks by day will not stumble. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, so, absolutely. So, this passage, because I've researched this one in particular a lot, um, has like six different interpretations. One of them goes back to what Hannah was saying about time, right? And about a lot of this whole story is about the time that Jesus shows up, about understanding that his plan and his chronology and his linearity is very different from ours and of his authority over and with time, right? And it's going to foreshadow his own resurrection and it's going to have all this other, it's not a coincidence that the language that is used to describe Lazarus' resurrection really parallels the way that Jesus, um, the language that's going to be used there. There are women crying at Lazarus' tomb, and it's going to parallel almost exactly the women that are crying with Jesus' tomb. Like, you're going to have these, these kind of moments. And that passage, the are there not 12 hours by day, um, for he sees this world's light, is when he walks by night that he stumbles, for he has no light. If you understand him to be saying, I am the light, then, like, 
go with me. I have control over this whole situation. It might be a sort of manifestation of his authority. Why do you think he doesn't just say, I got this, guys? Right? He, he uses all this, like, metaphoric language, and he could just be like, it's fine. I, I'm in control. He could really spell it out. Yeah. Uh-huh. And you see that all over the place. Right? That's why this is one book. Because you're going to see, the, and he does it throughout the time. Often when he's speaking, you're going to see these references and these other moments that you're like, I read that somewhere else. And it's because he's referencing and he's calling himself the light and he's talking about his own kind of ordering. There is also sort of beauty and a poetry that Jesus is not scared of, right? Um, there is a, a mystery and a, and a kind of a love of language that I, I obviously, it melts my heart. But I appreciate the, like, you need metaphor some, sometimes to, under, to sort of describe the bigness of it. You use metaphors and similes when it's, you have to talk about love. Love is like, love is like, because you don't have the, like, the way to explain exactly what it is. And his authority and his power and his dominion, he's often going to use these kind of metaphoric language to kind of try to get you close to, but also show you that, like, it's so much bigger than just me like laying it out like a chart or diagram or this is exactly how this is going to happen. It's like, it's, it's bigger than that and it's more beautiful than that. Anybody else, anything else that kind of stands out to you? Any other kind of, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ultimately the defense of the disciples is that they're human and they're, they're trying to figure it out with what they've got. And we're very similar in that. We're trying to, and you're absolutely, that's like such a, a nice way to kind of put it. His perspective is so much greater and so much larger. And a lot of this back and forth in this conversation is trying, is trying to communicate something that remains almost outside their paradigm, especially at this point. Like they might be able to understand it later post-resurrection. But at this point, it's with what they've understood. They're trying to kind of grapple with that knowledge. And sometimes it feels like, guys, why aren't you getting it? And it's like, well, would we have gotten it? Like, would we necessarily have sat in that moment and been like, for sure, and been the Thomas that's just like, yep, we're going. Um, or would we have been like, I don't really, Judea? That's where we're going? Isn't he already dead? Is he sleeping? I'm super confused. The reason why, and we'll kind of end here, we could talk so much longer about this. Like, I love, it starts off the first line, now a man named Lazarus was sick. That's the opening line. You think of like the opening line to novels. I read you the Invisible Man's opening line. Uh, Moby Dix says, call me Ishmael, right? Uh, now a man named Lazarus was sick. That's it. And it ends the very last part of that exposition, those first 16. Then Thomas called Didymus, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. And throughout the whole, those 16 verses, the trope of like death and sickness and sleep and trying to kind of reformat what death means and struggling with, like, is it a sleep? Is it a death? And Jesus trying to be like, I, I get that you don't understand right now. This will be clear. All of that is happening. And whereas he might seem callous, I think the reason why this passage is so beautiful is because it's the same story where, and Matt brought this up, where you have two words, Jesus wept. So if you're only at the first 16 verses, you're like, this Jesus. <laughs> okay. Can you, your friend is sick and you're just like hanging out for fun. You're like, maybe like, guys, he's not asleep. He's dead. Like you, your picture of him might not be super clear. And yet understanding that his authority and his dominion and his understanding and his perspective 
that same story tells us that he still wept. And it has you, like, sit with that. So the reason why I wanted us to do this exercise together is for a couple reasons. Um, I'm no, I'm not the expert, right? I don't necessarily pretend to be, nor do I necessarily want to be. And for someone who's, like, super excited to get, like, a doctor in front of my name, like, the reality is, is that there's so much that I'm constantly learning in classrooms with students. I can't stand up there and just tell them this is what the whole novel means. I gather information every single time I teach it. I gather information from other people. And I would argue that scripture merits just as much sustained critical attention as anything else that I teach in my life. Right? There's the work of art that you just kind of walk by. You're like, cool, and you keep on going. And then there's the, the ones that like just stop you, and you have to like look at it, and you're like, what is happening here? The sculpture, if you've seen St. John the Divine, it has this weird sculpture um, outside, and it's this big globe, and it has like pagan symbols mixed with Christian symbols, and you're just, every single time, Alberto and I used to live on that street, we'd walk by, we were just like, what is happening? Like, you couldn't just move. You have to like think about it. There are songs that like you get stuck in your head, and then there are other ones where a line just like, ugh, like hits you, and you like replay the song, and you replay the song, because you're like, I need that, they got me. That one line just kind of got me. Um, art is supposed to move you. It's supposed to make you feel emotional. But I, I do think it's also supposed to make you think. And it's supposed to challenge you. And it's going to do that differently for all of us. And not all of us have the same tool set. Right? For some people, art is that creative force that they have to get out. When we first moved to the city, um, Alberto, who studied art in college, I remember he was like, I need an outlet because he didn't have a place to paint. He didn't have a place to build. And he, we literally spent that first year praying for him to get like some sort of creative outlet because he felt like he had this thing that he had to like get out. And the Lord opened up and he got to a school, opened up a wood shop, and he got to like volunteer there and just like uh, release. Um, if you invite me to do crafts, I'm like anxious about it since the invitation all the way that I can't, the thought of like producing art is like, uh, it, it, I can't. Maybe it's the like, perfectionist or control freak or whatever. Maybe it's the feelings thing. I'm just like, um, it's not. And yet I access it differently, right? I, I can appreciate it and I can sit with it and it can move me and it can challenge me. In my case, it might challenge me to think. And it certainly makes me want to have conversations. But scripture, I would argue, is something that merits close, careful attention, contemplation, conversation. It should make us feel things. It should make us think about things. It should make us talk about stuff. What I've tried to illustrate also is that it's not easy, right? It's not something that we should expect to just in isolation totally understand. I, I would argue it wasn't even really designed to function that way. It was meant to be something that we pour over, that we talk about. The disciples didn't get it. Jesus had to tell them plainly. And they were in a group, and they were sitting there, and they were having a conversation and trying to figure out what he meant. So I don't want us to beat ourselves up if we don't get it. And then that becomes Larry's job and Wendy's job to explain it to us. <laughs> like, I don't know. This is Because I study literature professionally, and I still sometimes, that passage of, like, the hours of the day, I tried to make sense of it myself. And then I read, like, six commentaries, and all six said something differently. And it depends on when your focus is. And, it, and I realized that's okay, too. Right? 
that doesn't make it any less accessible or powerful. It also doesn't make it any less our kind of call to really study and pour over it. So in closing, I have to confess something, because as I was preparing this, I realized for myself I had this like, conviction of, I wonder if I'm doing a disservice to my own study of the word when my devotional counts as a passage that's been extracted and someone has put an interpretation next to it. Because that's, if I'm being honest, like that's a lot of my devotional life, is seeing somebody else tell me what this one passage in isolation means. And that's super powerful, and I have been like shattered with those moments. But I wonder, and it's something worth kind of thinking about in our own walks and in our own, is there, is there a different approach? Is, might there be another way to come at this? Am I, would it be some worthwhile to think about this in community, to bring it up with someone else and say, hey, can we study the book of Luke, right? It's maybe the, John is super poetic and his language is like beautiful. Luke is a little more accessible, I think, in terms of his like metaphors and the, his approach to the gospel. Because I pour over words every single day and I pick them apart and I love them and I listen to them and I kind of sit with them and I wrestle with them. Um, and scripture is just as beautiful and rich a text for us to do that. Right, to read it not just instrumentally, which is like, what can I, what do I need? What can I get out of it? But to sit with it as a story and as a narrative. So because I can't resist and I'm a teacher at heart, I have some homework. <laughs> um, basically the homework is just, I would encourage you to finish the story. This one story of Lazarus, right? Um, see what else you learn. I would encourage the, if it's hard, Sometimes it's easier to start with just what is happening, like basic level. This is happening, this is happening, this is happening. Cool. Who's involved? Okay, these are my characters. Man, Jesus looks really different in these next 16 verses. The Jesus that I described in the first 16, he's starting to really reveal other parts of his character over here, and I'm learning something else about him. And what is up with Mary and Martha? There, there are so many details we didn't get to cover, right? It doesn't just say Jesus loved this family. It says Jesus loved Mary and Martha and Lazarus, and it repeats them individually multiple times. Like, he loved them as individual people. And when we look at that one passage, maybe you get something else out of it, this one story. And what I find beautiful is that Matt actually shared about this story, right? And at first, I was like, maybe you should pick a different one. And then it just felt like, no, maybe there's a new way to read the stories that we've been kind of used to reading or that we've internalized in a certain way. So I guess the assignment is like what my um, pastor that I had in Puerto Rico used to say, get in the book, get in the book, get in the book. Um, I would just encourage you guys to do it together. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and close in prayer. And thank you so much for, for listening and for being here with me. Lord, I am grateful because you have given us such an amazing way to access you. You have not made yourself. Cryptic, you have given us tools and resources and community, and you desperately desire that we would understand you plainly, but that we would also enjoy the artistry of your creation. Thank you that you are a complex God. Thank you, because as hard as sometimes it might be, I'm also appreciative that you are bigger than what a simple who, what, when, where, why can explain. Jesus, we surrender our efforts and we ask you to give us even more of a desire to enter into your word, 
to love your word, to store it up in our heart, to study it, and to really, really follow after you with this that you've laid out for us. This week, Lord God, open it up for us in new ways. Um, for those of us who might have fallen kind of out of a habit of reading it or maybe out of interest or feeling like it's too hard or inaccessible, give us a moment, give us a way in, give us an encouragement, an inspiration, or a friend to do it with. Jesus, we love you. We surrender our lives to you. Thank you. In your name we pray. Amen.